Good morning. We're beginning a new series today. I'll just ask a quick question. I wonder, have you ever asked yourself the question, ever wondered, what does it mean to be a Christian? Not how do I get saved, not how do I become a Christian, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a Christian, what is a follower of Jesus, what is a Christian supposed to look like? I think that's a great question to ask. What is it that Jesus Christ expects of you and me as his followers? I think the probably the best answers to those questions are found in the passage that will be our study for the next few months. I invite you to take your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to begin this morning a study in one of the most well-known passages of Scripture, that passage that's often called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' public ministry began... Just a, a few months after, if you'll recall back, Jesus went down to the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing. You may recall, John the Baptist baptized Jesus and he introduced him as the one whom he had been preparing the way for, the one whose sandals he was not worthy to untie, the one he later said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John introduced Jesus. Jesus went off after that into the wilderness, you may recall, where he was tempted. He took a short little trip up to Galilee and then came back to Jerusalem for a Passover. At that Passover, he went to the temple and you recall that he went in and it was filled with money changers and corrupt Sellers, and he had turned the house of God into a mall, a marketplace, a den of thieves. And you recall, he, he cleansed the temple. And that really was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And he, there in, in Judea, the southern part of Israel, the little beige area there on the, in the bottom, he, he ministered there in that area for about eight months. And then when John the Baptist was arrested by Herod, you recall he had not made many friends there. With, he had pointed out Herod's sin. and Anyway, John gets arrested. And at that time, Jesus leaves Judea and heads north up to the region of Galilee. And then for the next two years, Galilee becomes... Jesus' home base. It's his, the center of his ministry. When Jesus goes to Galilee, we find here in Matthew chapter 4, before our text here, Jesus goes throughout Galilee preaching and teaching of the kingdom of God and healing all those who come to him, healing them of all kinds of every disease. People from all over Galilee start following Jesus around, as well as people up from the north in the region of Syria, and people to the east in the Decapolis. 
And people down to the southeast on the other side of the Jordan, also called Perea. And people from Judea as well have come up to Galilee. There are huge crowds, large crowds, following Jesus wherever He goes. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them. This message of Jesus, as we said, is probably the most well-known of, of all of Jesus' teaching. Probably the most loved of all of Jesus' teaching. And yet there's much we don't know about it. Many things we don't know about this famous sermon. For one thing, we don't know exactly where this mountain was that he went up on. Lots of scholars debate about lots of different locations, but tradition tells us it was here. On this, this hill, we would call it, this mountain that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. On the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, not far from Capernaum, if you're on top of the hill looking down, you'd look out over the Sea of Galilee from this perspective. This may well have been where it was, but we don't know that for sure. We also don't know exactly who was in the audience. Again, lots of debate about that. Was it just his close disciples, the twelve chosen ones whom he has chosen? Were they the only audience there? Or was it that group plus a bigger circle of followers, those who've committed themselves? Or was it just the whole throngs that have been following him around for these months that he's been preaching? We really don't know for sure. All our text tells us is that he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Why did he go up on the mountain would be a great question to ask. And if we knew the answer to that, we might have a better idea who the audience was. Did Jesus go up on the mountain to get away from the crowds? The crowds have been following him for months and he's just trying to get away and he wants some time, some private time with his chosen disciples, the twelve. So maybe he's trying to get away from the crowd or maybe he's just trying to thin the herd. You know, there's thousands of people following and he wants to get it down to this, the serious ones. And so if I get off the beaten path, Get away from the easy places to be. Make it where it takes some effort. You gotta want to get there to get there. Gotta walk a little farther. Be away from the, you know, the 7-Elevens and the Burger Kings and be out and maybe that's it. He's thinning the herd. That's what some folks think. Some folks think, some folks think that wasn't the issue at all. He was, Merely, he wants to preach to the whole crowd, and he's going up on the hillside to look for a place that, on, on a mountain where there's a natural amphitheater. So you can take advantage of the acoustics to be heard by the bigger crowd. Because unlike when he's been, want, when he's been going around preaching, what he has to say, he wants everyone to hear clearly. So maybe that's what he's doing. And the text says, it tells us here, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. What we do know is whoever the audience was, Jesus sits down. And that's instructive to us. It tells us something. In modern day, when we read this, we think, well, Jesus was getting kind of all millennial here. He wants to, to sit down and get kind of casual and let's have a dialogue. 
Because that's the millennial way of doing things. And in our way of thinking, that is getting less formal, and so we can be a little more personal. But things are opposite today of what they were in first century Palestine with the Jews. When a teacher, a rabbi, sits down, it is a sign of speaking from authority. It's the sign of we're getting serious here. And so in our day, it's when we're standing, we're more serious. In their culture, it's when the, the rabbi sits down. Everybody, oh, get quiet. we got to listen. This is important. And what it says is when Jesus sat down, it says his disciples came to him. The imagery was clear, regardless of how big the audience was. What was clear is Jesus is about to teach. And those who are the disciples, those who are committed to following Him, those who are serious about wanting to know more about who Jesus is and what He has to say, they're the ones who come in close and they want to listen closely. And what the imagery here, the picture is, is Jesus is targeting this message for His followers. This is a message directed at the the disciples, the followers of Jesus, Which means that, by the way, for us today, this is a message for us. Sadly, through the centuries, there have been many folks who have tried to to take this sermon of Jesus and pawn it off on, well, it was for folks back then, or it's for folks in the future, and it's not for us. But the way I see this passage very clearly, it is for any and all of us who are followers of Jesus. And it makes sense for us. The one from whom God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. It makes sense for us when Jesus sits down and begins to address His followers that we crowd in close and turn our head a little bit and cup our ear and listen. What is Jesus saying to you and me as His followers? Jesus in this sermon is going to explain to us how we are to live as followers of Jesus. He's going to answer the question, what does a Christian look like? What does a disciple of Jesus look like? We're going to, this is so important that I've committed us to spend from now through the rest of the winter and all through the spring to look at this very important message from now to the end of May. And we're going to be hurrying to do that. So Jesus has sat down. He's taken the position of the rabbi, the master. The disciples have gathered around and Jesus begins to teach. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And immediately they go, oh, 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 wait, I know this. Right? We all go, wait, we know this passage. We, we, we know this. This is the Beatitudes. And you guys are right. Why is it called the Beatitudes anyway? That'd be a great question to ask. Well, the answer to that is simply when the when the Greek Scriptures were translated into Latin, when you would read these verses, what you would discover is that 
The first word of every verse is beatitudo, which means blessed or happy. Just like when we read it in English, depending on your translation, every verse begins with happy or blessed. It's just a Latin word. It got moved over into English, and we call it the Beatitudes. We might as well call it, might as well call it the happies or the blessings. And by the way, we like that. How many of you like to be happy? I do. Isn't it good news that here, Jesus, when He's describing what it is to be a follower of His, what does a follower of Jesus look like? How are we to live? What are we to do? He begins by saying, happy, blessed. That's something to get excited about. That's why this is one of the most beloved passages of Scripture. Everybody wants to be happy. Every characteristic here, there's going to be eight beatitudes, eight blessings, eight happies. Every one of them describes a characteristic of Jesus' disciples, of Jesus' followers. Eight of them. Every one of them comes with a blessing and a promise. That's good news. It's like a warm, fuzzy blanket on a cold day. Unfortunately, many people don't get past the warm fuzzies. They don't make it past the happies. They don't make it past the blessed to really think about what Jesus says. And they miss the power of these words. Last week, if you were here or you watched online... We heard Tom Phillips, our missionary to Mongolia, shared about their ministry there. We've been partners with them for almost 30 years since they first went over. He shared about how difficult it is to share with Mongolian people, to share the gospel with them, because the typical Mongolian has given little to no thought to what comes after this life. All they're interested in is what will make their life good now? What will bring them blessing now? What will bring enjoyment and pleasure and prosperity to them now? And what they're interested in, when you come talk to Jesus, they're like, what's in it for me now? And as I heard Tom tell that about Mongolia, I thought in my mind, I thought, Tom, actually that doesn't sound very different from St. Chuck, Missouri. Right here where we live. Most people around us aren't really that concerned with what comes after this life. Most of them really aren't concerned about what happens when I die. Am I going to stand before God? Most people are more interested in what will make me feel good today. What will make, bring me pleasure and prosperity what will make me happy? Jesus here starts off His greatest sermon ever preached with these words, happy are those. That's what everybody wants to hear. What will make us happy? When we look at these Beatitudes carefully, 
We note that each one of them promises happiness. Each one of them promises blessedness. But we also notice that accompanying each one of these, and there's a formula for every one of these. There's, as I said, there's eight of them. We're only going to look at four today. But they begin with happy are those, and then it describes a characteristic, who, and then it has a blessing that comes along with that characteristic. But as we look at these characteristics, happy are those, we see that happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are the those who, we get on down the list and the bottom, those who are persecuted. And what we realize when you go through the list is every one of these characteristics comes with a cost. Every one of them comes with some degree of pain, some degree of effort, some degree of sacrifice, some degree of deprivation, maybe even some degree of persecution and suffering. And immediately that makes folks like Mongolians and St. Charlesans go, wait a minute, I'm all for the happy part, but I'm not so sure I'm in for the difficulty part. And then we get to the blessing that follows it. Happy are the this, for they... And you get to looking at the blessings and what you realize is the blessings have some application to life now, but the real big part of the blessing, the real great thing of the promise, all has to do with what is to come after this life in the kingdom of heaven. And so most people who listen to this go, "Mm." matter of fact, to the person who isn't living for heaven, To the person who is living for today, these things in the Beatitudes are absolute rubbish. If you move it past the sentimentality, the little warm blanket fuzzies, which a lot of people just embrace it and that's why they love it. They've never gotten past the fuzzies to ask, what is he really saying? Happy are the poor in spirit, happy are the meek, happy are the mourners, happy are the... That all sounds nice until you start thinking, hmm... Do I really want to do this? But Jesus says to you and me, followers of His, and I dare say most of us in this room, most of us watching at home would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Let's look and see what Jesus calls us to be. By the way, someone pointed out that before Jesus starts telling us what to do in the rest of the sermon, He begins by telling us what to be. These inner characteristics, they're inside That's why they're called, some have said, they call the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. Of course, that's not really the reason why. We already talked about why they're called the be attitudes. But it helps us remember, these are all about inner characteristics. Begin with the first one. Pick it up in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. The first thing to notice as we read this is to read it carefully and notice that what he doesn't say is blessed are the poor. Happy are the poor. In some way, that's good news and bad news. 
It would be bad news because for most of us, we're pretty rich. We are among the richest people in the world. And if blessed are the poor, that's bad news for us because we're kind of striking out there. On the other hand, it's good news because if you want to be happy and being happy is just simply being poor, the good news is all you've got to do to be happy is go home, take a for sale sign, put it in front of your house, throw all your stuff in the front yard, have a massive garage sale, liquidate everything you've got, and then go live on the street. And you're going to be happy. The reality, of course, is we all figure out that's not what he means because, first of all, we know poor people and they're not happy. Of course, we also know rich people who are miserable. We're surrounded by them. We notice if we read carefully, he says, not blessed are the poor, but blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus doesn't say poverty is a great blessing. What he says is spiritual poverty is a blessing. The word poor here, by the way, in the Greek is a word that doesn't mean just a little bit poor. doesn't mean just, you know, I, I lack a little bit. It is the word for absolute, being absolutely destitute. Abject poverty. You don't have two pennies, as it were, to rub together. You don't even have one penny. You've got nothing. And the picture in spiritual poverty is that we have no standing before God. We have nothing that, that we can bring to God, no goodness that we can bring to God, no, no worth that we can bring to God, nothing where we come into His presence and have anything for Him to like us, approve us, care about us. We are abject beggars. Matter of fact, all we bring is not anything good. All we bring, the Bible says, is sin and guilt worthy of hell. As it is written, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, The wages of sin is death. Spiritual poverty, you see, the Bible tells us is spiritual poverty is not just being spiritually poor. Because what those verses just told us is everybody is spiritually poor. Everybody is spiritually bankrupt. Matter of fact, not just bankrupt, in debt. Because all have sinned. There is no one righteous, not even one. Every one of us are guilty before God and the wages of sin is death. It is hell. That's the bad news. That is the natural condition. So being poor in spirit, if that's what it is, all of us qualify and we're all blessed and happy. But that's not the point. Because being poor in spirit is not just being poor. It is knowing you're poor. It is acknowledging you're poor. It is owning the fact, I am destitute. I got nothing, God. It is joining with Isaiah. You recall Isaiah chapter 6 where he had a vision of the Lord. And as he saw this vision of the Lord, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. 
I am, I'm, I'm done. I'm toast. Be my translation. For I am a man of unclean lips. He has come into the presence of the holy God and he realizes that he is in abject poverty in terms of that he is a sinner. He has no righteous, no goodness, and all he deserves is God's, is God's judgment. He says, I am, it's the NIV that translates it, ruined. That is spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty is recognizing that I'm not just a pretty good guy who's made a few mistakes. Overall, I'm a, I'm a good person. I just need a little tune-up. I need a little tweak here and there. I need a little bit of fixing by God. No, the, the point is, we are as rotten as rotten can be. We're below rotten. That's spiritual poverty. We've got absolutely nothing to offer God and I'm doomed. We say, Pastor, how is any of this good news? And how does any of this bring happiness or blessedness? Here's the good part of this. Proverbs chapter 9 says this. It says, verse 20, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding or insight. You see, it's when we realize that God is holy and I am not, and I am doomed. That's knowledge of the Holy One. He says that's where wisdom begins. Because it's at that moment when we realize that we are spiritually bankrupt, we are poor and destitute in spirit, it's at that moment that we are in the position to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, I got nothing but God be merciful to me. And the Bible says, yes! Yes, that's the perfect place to be. The reason that the beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit is because God has said in Isaiah chapter 57, God says this, I live in a high and holy place, but also, get this, also with Him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The holy God says to ruined sinners, if you come contrite, broken, bankrupt, poor in spirit, God says, I who dwell in the high and holy place will dwell with you. Isn't that awesome? And I will revive, I will bring life to you. Where there was death, where there was sin, where there was Deserving of hell, He will give life. That is the good news, the message of the Gospel. James chapter 4, verse 6 says it this way, God opposes the proud. The person who says, I'm pretty good. Overall, I'm a decent guy. God should like me. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The person who thinks that they're basically pretty good is Tragically mistaken. They are terribly wrong. They think too highly of themselves. And as the old saying goes, he who is too big for his britches gets exposed in the end. 
the only thing you'll remember from this whole sermon. <laughs> but it's the point. When we think we're something, we get exposed as nothing. But when we come to God broken as sinners, spiritually bankrupt, God says, I've got good news for you. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Whereas Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why this, this beatitude, this blessing is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who come to God and throw themselves upon His mercy Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God gives them life, forgiveness, eternal life. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, by the way. Notice it's present tense. Not will be. It's yours now. The Bible says the moment that you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says we are transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We become citizens of heaven even though we are here on earth. We become, as, as the, the letter from Peter says, First Peter, we become aliens and strangers in this world because our home is in heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes of this beatitude. This beatitude is first because it obviously is the key to all that follows. In other words, what he's saying is it's only because we now have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ because we have come spiritually bankrupt to God. We have a relationship with God. We have an eternal home in heaven, a destiny there. We have an inheritance there now. That is the basis of all the rest of the Beatitudes. That's what makes all the rest of the Beatitudes make sense. Without this foundation, none of the rest matters. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've used most of our time on that because that's the biggie. It's the key. We're going to quickly go through three more. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And we go, that is just weird. For they shall be comforted. How many of you like to mourn? I don't. I've spent a lot of time in the last week with mourners. We've had a lot of our brothers and sisters die three in less than two weeks. None of us like to mourn, but he says, blessed are those who mourn. We live in a broken world. And in this broken world, we mourn, we mourn our sufferings because we experience sufferings. We experience loss and we mourn our loss. We get hurt. We experience injustice and we mourn those things, don't we? Because it hurts. But for those of us who follow Jesus, there's good news. Really good news. We can be happy because we're blessed folks because we have a, we have a future in heaven. And we go to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 21, and it says this. It says, and God Himself will be with them, us. They're in heaven he will be with them as their God and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. That's great news. But there's more to this, I think, than that. 
It's true. Every bit of that is true. And that's a great reason for us to be blessed and happy. But there's more than that. It was over 30 years ago, I read a book by Phil Yancey called Where is God When It Hurts? I don't remember much about the book, but I remembered one thing he said. I hate pain. Any of you guys hate pain? Not many hands went up. You guys, I guess I'm weird. I really hate pain. I go to a lot of trouble to avoid pain. Okay, I'm a wimp about pain. Many of you are. Some of you live with pain all the time. And you're my heroes, by the way. I, when I read that book, I remember, because the book was called Where is God When It Hurts? And I remember he wrote this. He said, pain is our friend. And I wanted to throw the book away. I said, no, it's not. Thank you very much. Pain is my enemy. He said, no, pain is our friend. You know, if you're walking along barefoot, you step on a piece of glass, pain tells you, ouch, that hurts. Pick your foot up immediately. Don't put it back down. Get the glass out. Pain is our friend because pain tells us something is terribly wrong. And if we don't change what we're doing, if we don't do something differently, great damage will occur. And he goes on and talks about that's really the tragedy of leprosy is losing sensation of pain. And he, that's a great illustration. He goes on. But I just want to stop there. Just say, see, because he moves it to the spiritual realm. We live in a world where we experience pain all the time. I wonder, why do I experience all this pain? Well, the pain is there, even like it is in our physical body. The pain is here to tell us that something is wrong. We live in a broken world and the world is broken because of sin. Every bit of pain and suffering in this world screams out and cries, this world is broken because sin is here. And so what it should do for us is it should make us go, I hate pain. And because I hate pain, I hate sin. And it should cause us to mourn over the sin that is in the world. Not just the stuff that hurts me, but it, there's, it, it hurts everybody. And it offends God. And you see, it's very easy for you and me, brothers and sisters, to mourn the pain that we feel, the, the stuff that hurts us. But it's a very rare thing for those followers of Jesus who mourn not just the things that hurt them, but who mourn the sin that hurts God and the sin that hurts others. I think that's what Jesus is referring to here. Blessed are those who mourn. I saw this lived out in my grandfather. Not that many memories of my grandfather, uh, but there's some that are just vivid in my brain still now. I recall times being at their house and he's pulled out the, the newspaper back when they still had those. And uh, he's reading the newspaper going along and I'm over playing with my trucks or whatever. And as he's reading, all of a sudden I'd hear, Oh! Oh no! That's terrible! This is awful! He'd read about some crime or some hurt or some... Something going on and he would just, he would get angry 
because it was a sin that offended God. And then he would begin to weep and cry for the victim, a rape victim, a murder victim, a victim of some any crime. He would cry for them. And then he would start praying for them. Oh, God, would you... And he, Put your hand upon them. Would you, would you comfort them? Would you? And he would pray and pray and pray. And then he would start crying over the perpetrator. And start praying for the perpetrator. Oh, God, convict them of their sin. Drive them to Jesus. I've never forgotten that. May I say, I still don't do that. But I should. I think that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to. That heartbeat... Blessed are those who mourn. For even in this broken world where things are so wrong, so messed up, and even at times it hurts us, we know that one day there will be comfort. There will be comfort. When Jesus comes back, King Jesus is going to come back. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to judge every evil. We should long for that day. In the meantime, He gives comfort to us in the middle of our struggles, in the middle of our pain. He gives us a joy that transcends suffering and pain. That's the happiness that He's offering. Can't be taken away by a problem today or a problem tomorrow. Hmm. The third, very quickly, two more, but we'll be quick. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek. The word meek, by the way, doesn't mean mousy. It doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean timid. It doesn't mean afraid. I know that for many reasons, but the simplest one is simply the Bible calls Moses meek. The Bible calls Jesus meek. Neither Moses nor Jesus were timid. Neither Moses nor Jesus were mousy. Neither of them were afraid. The Greek word used here for meek is used to describe powerful horses that respond to the very least command, the very least gesture movement of their master, of their rider. They were used of the horses that pulled the chariots and the chariot races. They responded to the little least tug or, or movement of the reins. Incredibly powerful animals. So the word meek is all about strength that is under control. And what it's saying is that the meek person exhibits humility toward God and towards man. The meek person is a strong person. The meek person is a bold person, but the meek person is not a person who is promoting themselves or exalting themselves. They're not seeking their own agenda, their own desires, their own comfort, their own will, but they're a person who is yielding to God, saying, God, what is it you want? And that's their mission. And who is concerned about others. It's the quality that's exhibited in in, or we're called to in, in Philippians chapter 2 where he's talking about humility and he says, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The meek man is the man who is gentle and kind to his wife 
and who seeks her good above his good. That is the strong man, but a meek man. Followers of Jesus are to be people who are strong, but people who are meek. Strength under control. These folks are the ones, the Beatitude says, who will inherit the earth. The meek person doesn't have to advance themselves. In our culture, it's all about advancing yourself, getting your name out there, getting your, all your great qualities out there, getting your resume out there, letting everybody know how wonderful you are. Toot your horn, because that's how you get ahead. The follower of Jesus says, you know what? God, that's all in your hands. My first priority is following you. And in the process of that, to be a servant to others. And the rest of it, God, I leave in your hands. If you exalt me, I'm exalted. If you humble me, I'm humbled. If you prosper me, I prosper. If you take me into poverty, I go into poverty. I don't care because it's not about me. It's as Jesus calls us to pray later in this sermon. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's as Jesus prayed before going to the cross, not my will, but your will be done. That is meekness. By the way, these folks inherit the earth. The real treasures aren't in this life. They are in the kingdom to come. And these are the folks who are the winners. They are those who are meek. Lastly, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Have you noticed that we live in a world We live in a culture, we live in a neighborhood, you probably live in a home full of hungry and thirsty people. We are surrounded by hungry and thirsty people. They are hungry and thirsty for what? For satisfaction. Just like the Rolling Stones, they can't get any. You know? But we, 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 as a culture, we are pursuing satisfaction. We're pursuing what makes us happy. And Jesus says here, I'm offering you happiness and blessedness. And people pour themselves into it because after all, it's our inalienable rights right there in the Declaration of Independence. You know, it's an inalienable right to pursue happiness. And so they go at it with everything they got. And we pour ourselves into relationships and sex and alcohol and drugs and music and work and accomplishments and wealth and houses and possessions and stuff and experiences and sports and recreation. We pour ourselves into all of it and we keep finding ourselves coming up empty. Why is that? Because we didn't read Solomon who tried all that back in the book of Ecclesiastes who said it's vanity. It's all like chasing after the wind. It's emptiness. We missed what he had to say. And Jesus says right here, he says, happy are those who pursue happiness. No. Happy are those who hunger and thirst after satisfaction. No. Happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And we miss that. Do you want to be happy? The problem is we chase the wrong thing. Jesus says if you want to be happy, pursue righteousness. We will find happiness when we start pursuing the right thing. We need to carefully consider what Jesus says here. There's a promise. We will be happy and we will be satisfied when we make our desire the right thing. 
They shall be satisfied, he says. When we make it our desire to be right, to be who God has called us to be, when we make it our desire to do right, to follow God's Word, when we make it our desire to pray for and to do what we can to make the world right around us, See, that's desiring and hungering and thirsting for righteousness inside of me in what I do as much as I can in the world around me. I long to see what is right. I long to see, is again, the, the prayer in Jesus will teach us to pray later on in this sermon where He says, I long for Your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want the right. We make that our desire. God says, Jesus promises here, you're going to find satisfaction even in the midst of a broken world. But ultimately, when it's consummated, when it comes to culmination, when Jesus returns. Well, we've got half the picture, half the portrait Jesus has started to paint of His follower. It's those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Four more coming next week. But I wonder, how did you compare to the list? How you doing? <laughs> you can't score lower than me. I scored pretty bad this week when I looked at this list. No shame here. Rather, what is here this morning, I'm urging you to join me. Let's commit ourselves to aim at these characteristics. To aspire to these, to desire these, because what blessings, what beatitudes we miss, because we've been aiming at other things. Do you believe Jesus? Do you trust in Him? We're trusting in Him from heaven, for heaven. Why don't we trust in Him to trust He knows what's best? He says, aim for these things. Are you a follower of me? Follow me in this. Well, Father, thank you for this message. Convicting, it is, but it's also hopeful because what you have laid out for us is stuff that's crazy, quite frankly, from the world perspective. This is nuts, but you've called us to this because you say, this is what my followers ought to be like, and there is blessing in this, and there are eternal rewards in this. So, Father, may those things move us, motivate us, change our perspective. And may, we, may these things be what we desire and what we aspire to and what we pray for and what we begin little by little to inculcate and to enact in our life. So you'll be honored in us. Father, for our own good, that we will experience the blessings and desires you have for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.